You know, this week we were watching on TV part of the dismal failure of Hillsong Church. Don't know if you've watched some of those documentaries. It's nothing new. The same could be said for Mars Hill Church. The same could be said for Horizon Church, yet for the grace of God. Everywhere you go, there are ministers who are falling, uh, sessions and board of directors that are having wars against one another. Sometimes you just got to wonder, what in the world are we doing? Why is it even worth it? That is an interesting question. Why are we doing what we do? I mean, could you imagine if I uh, took the normal person on the street who didn't grow up understanding anything about the southern gospel, you know, this Christianese culture in which we live, if I brought them to church and they're wondering, why are these people singing and talking to someone they can't see? That's a bit strange. Why do they focus so much on reading some ancient book with odd practices and hard prescriptions? And now we're supposed to listen to a 25 to 30 minute talk? What's the deal? Why do they take precious little babies and startle them with water? Why are we getting ready to eat a snack and we're going to call it a supper? I mean, why do we need such special buildings? Why do we do this every single week? And how much money do we need to spend on leadership and on facilities for this kind of a, a thing called church? Why do we do what we do? What would happen if we just stopped and just individually sat on our sofa and talked to Jesus and went on a mountain and found the Spirit? Does it really matter? And I want to try to remind you why we do what we do and this may seem self-aggrandizing. Uh, if I were to leave and not be your pastor, I would hope that you would maintain this allegiance to the rituals of God. I would hope that if I went and made my living painting, that I would still have my family engaged every single week in the rituals of God. Why? Because they're important to God the Father. He prescribed them. They're important to God the Son. As you're going to see, He lived them out. It's important to the Spirit, for He is the one who authored the New Testament Scriptures, which tell us how the New Testament community ought to worship. It was important to Jesus. He was the perfect man, and you're going to see Luke makes a big deal of how he enjoyed these rituals. It's important for anyone who is a worshiper filled with awe, affection, awareness, and wisdom. Lord, would you please help? Help me convey this truth that is found in these early uh, verses in Luke's gospel. Make them come alive. That's your job, Lord. I'll present them. If you want any good work to be done, you have to do it. Help us, Lord. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So where does one get this idea that rituals are so important in the life of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus? You just have to keep reading. We've walked all the way through the, the Christmas story, and now we get right here to Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. And at the end of eight days, that means Jesus is eight days old, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. They did so as is written in the law of the Lord. 
Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And they went there to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So help you with the flow. I mean, you know these parts. We've been talking about them for the last couple of weeks. But Mary's this righteous girl. Joseph's this righteous guy. They've been waiting for a righteous marriage. They are betrothed, looking forward to holy matrimony. Everything's going great and normal until it's all turned upside down by a visitation from Gabriel who says, Mary, without having sex, you're going to have the son of God. Mary submits herself. I am the Lord's servant. Joseph submits himself. I am the Lord's servant. Mary will be called the mother of God. Joseph will be his adoptive father. They are now right in the center of God's will. And then things get really bad. Notice, you can be in the center of God's will and things go horribly askew. This is exactly what happens for there is now a decree. It's a decree from Caesar Augustus that Joseph and Mary are going to have to hit the road in order to be registered and taxed. Notice this, that it's a decree from Caesar Augustus, kind of. It's really a decree from Almighty God who has already said when the Messiah comes, he can't be born in Nazareth. He has to be born in Bethlehem. So we've already got a second application there, that God is the God who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one who sends Mary and Joseph and Jesus from Nazareth to Bethlehem. He is the one who makes their life really, really tough. Well, they relocate. They go on the road trip. They make their way to Bethlehem, and the events there are legendary. There's no room for them in the end. Thankfully, there's someone who's hospitable and gives them some place to stay for the night. That night, her water broke. Maybe she started that breathing technique that some of us learned in our Lamaze classes. Joseph's sitting there wide-eyed like I'm sure I was going, I'm here to help, babe. What should I do? Mary is now pushing the baby Jesus comes out tenderly. They hold him in their arms, the Son of God. They wrap him in swaddling cloths and lie him, lay him to rest. They nurture him in a feeding trough. I think at this point they would have all enjoyed just, can we have a little quiet now? Nope. God had already been working while Mary was screaming, giving birth. Angels were shouting and singing on the hills and had sent shepherds their way. So now... Immediately after giving birth, it appears that the shepherds arrive and there is a time when these rugged men of the hills are now bowed prostrate before the infant Jesus. Mary now ponders what in the world is going on. And we have nothing else now for the next week. Hopefully the Lord just gave them some time of bonding, healing, recuperating, pondering. But we do know what happens on the eighth day. On the eighth day, it's time for this holy family to start practicing their rituals. The ritual of circumcision is the first one that happens. It's an ancient Jewish ritual. At this point, it was being done for 2,000 years. So you traditionalists, you would love this. 2,000 years of families in worship participating in this act. But it was more than just ancient tradition. This was an ordained ceremony from God. God showed up to Abraham and said, Abraham, do you believe me? Abraham said, yes, I do. 
Are you going to follow me, Abraham? He said, yes, I will. Abraham was a believer. Then God said, I want you to participate in what I'm going to call believer circumcision. So Abraham was like, what's that? God explained what that surgery was going to entail. And Abraham said, I love you. I trust you. I follow you. Then God looked at Abraham and said, now all of your male servants that are in your house, you're supposed to have them circumcised as well. And so those male servants were circumcised. Then God looked at Abraham and said, and now every child that comes from your womb, every male child is to be circumcised when? On the eighth day. So I want you to put these pieces together from the mouth of God. After Abraham believed, he was to engage in believer circumcision. The mark of God was to be placed on him and upon all of his children, the sons of Abraham even though they weren't yet believers. Because it looks like the patriarch is supposed to make sure that all within his realm of leadership, his servanthood, is supposed to be marked by the mark of God. If you're in the covenant community, you get marked. How serious was God? That he showed up with Moses and made it clear that anyone who does not do this, they are excommunicated. That's how serious God was that this is my mark, this is my sign, this is my sacrament, I made it up, I tell you to whom it should be given and when it should be given to infants. That's how serious God was about circumcision. Why? Yes, there's some pragmatic value keeping one from disease. Yes, it has some covenantal value of showing you're within the community, but primarily it was a spiritual sign. It was a divine drama preaching a point. And this is what it preached, I believe, that men are corrupt sinners who can only procreate and create more corrupt sinners and all are without hope unless God were to come and do spiritual surgery. So physically, the surgery was done on the body but it pointed to the reality of the sign. Spiritually, it was to be done on the heart and on the head. And this is the work of God, the Holy Spirit. And so every time they engaged in this, that's why I think what a father was saying is, I am guilty and I have created guilty children and we have no hope unless a divine surgery were to happen. This is what they proclaimed. So here we have Joseph and Mary who are faithful. Why? Because they understand how serious God is about his rituals. They probably would have rather been in Nazareth with family, friends, and their personal doctor. But they know God wants this done on the eighth day, and they are meticulous in pursuing righteousness in this way, or ex expressing righteousness, better said. So they go to the local synagogue in Bethlehem, they find the mohel, that's the practitioner who's supposed to help fathers in this delicate surgery. And there, the Son of God submitted to the law that he authored. There, the Son of God earned the merit and the applause of God who said, that's what you're supposed to do. There, the Son of God identified himself or was identified as a corrupt young man 
who needed cleansing, even though we know that's not true, but he identified with his brothers in that way. There the Son of God was taken from his mother's arms, placed in his father's care, and made to bleed. And it won't be the final time. For about 33 or 36 years later, whatever it is, one more time, the mother will be present and she will see her grown son placed in the father's care. And the bleeding will come from his pores, from his hands, from his feet, from his head, from his side, from his heart. This is what circumcision means. We are guilty. We must be cleansed. And so they went through this ritual prescribed by God, which then led to the next ritual, the naming ritual. It was at this time that a father would then, after the circumcision, traditionally say, this is my son, and I now name him. But Joseph and Mary have no right to name this child because Joseph is not really the father of this child. The heavenly father is the father, and through Gabriel, both Mary and Joseph know his name is to be Jesus. His name is to be Jehovah saves. And so now we see the second ritual in which the son is circumcised, and then the son is named. Thirdly, the purification ritual. Sometime between day 8 and day 33... There's a lot of silence there. We're not sure what happens, but they make it now from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. They come into the holy city, and what do they do there? They go by birds. You might ask, why is a family buying birds? Because they're serious about the rituals of God. It's the purification ritual. In the Bible, in Leviticus, it says, when the woman gives birth to a son... She is unclean for the first seven days. At that point, according to Scripture, I believe she had a baptism, a washing, where she, again, was purified ceremonially to show she was clean. You might ask, why is a woman considered unclean when she gives birth? The answer, I think, is because she brought forth another sinner into the world. She participated with the man in bringing in a child of Satan who needs to be redeemed and saved. Well, on the seventh day or eighth day, she is now baptized, she is washed, she is cleansed. Water is ceremonially applied to her, but she still can't go to the temple. That has to happen on the 40th day, and that has to happen with a priest. So why are they here? They've been gone from home for a long time. But they're in Jerusalem because they're taking these rituals seriously. She brings with her two birds. Even then, she looks different than most ladies. You know, most ladies here walk in looking pretty sharp and stylish. I wonder how that feels to someone who has to come and worship with us who just doesn't quite have the money for the jewelry or the clothing that you do. I hope that we are just so wide open and accepting because God is. Because God had uh, organized that if you're a lady, you bring a lamb and a bird for this sacrament. But if you don't have money, you just go ahead and go get two birds. And you bring them here. So here comes Mary walking in with two birds, proclaiming what? I'm impoverished. 
I don't have the money to bring the lamb like some people might. And there, the ritual is lived out. Here's the Son of God submitting perfectly, earning merit, meeting with the priest, offering a bird. Notice that it does say about the impurity, this was the time for their purification. Not just hers. I think all of them were unclean. I think Mary was unclean because she gave birth. I think Jesus because he bled. I think Joseph because he's in the presence of all of this. It was the time for their purification. Here they come with their birds, faithfully keeping the rituals of God. Then comes the next, the dedication and the redemption. You see, back in Moses' day, God perused and he looked over all of the land of Egypt, including where Israel was. And you know how many righteous men he found? None. And God said, I am going to rain down my tenth plague and kill the firstborn son of everyone. And you might think, well, that was just an Egyptian plague. No. If you're an Israelite, your son is going to die too. God is without discrimination here. He looks across and he says, all firstborn males in the land will die. But then God, who is gracious, grants this opportunity of salvation, the way of escape for firstborn sons, whether you be an Egyptian or an Israelite. If you heard and believed your corrupt condition, if you heard and believed that God is gracious, if you heard and believed that God has provided one way of escape and you went and found a lamb, sacrificed a lamb, put it on your door, sheltered in place beneath the blood of the lamb, and then feasted in the time of judgment. You and your family would be blessed by God with salvation. And so ever since that point, God said, all those firstborn that I saved, they're mine, all of them. Therefore, you who are in Levi, the tribe of Levi, you're all going to be pastors, priests, clergy people. Everyone else, you're still mine, but your parents can buy you back for silver, because we're going to use that to fund the worship of God overseen by these priests. Well, that ritual has gone on in the time of Jesus until that day. And so here they are, submitting perfectly. Jesus is earning merit. He's being identified as a corrupt and sinful son. He's waiting for the day when he will not be purchased, but he will be sold for his brothers. One final ritual and we're done. If you kept reading, you would read of Simeon and his prophecy and then Anna and her response of worship. Then you would get to one final vignette or episode. And that's the famous one where Jesus' parents take him to Jerusalem at age 12. We've now skipped ahead. And what's the purpose? One more ritual. It's the Feast of Passover. So what are you seeing here now? Let's put these pieces all together. You have very little information. If this is when Jesus is born, you have nothing in Mark. John is only philosophical. Matthew gives us a little bit of information. Luke gives us a little more. But in all of Jesus' first 33 years, 
you have hardly anything presented by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Except in the book of Luke, when the Holy Spirit decided he was going to inspire and write and emphasize and highlight something, he highlights what? What I've just shown you. How the Holy Family is meticulous in keeping the rituals of God. Over and over, they are righteous in their presentation of worship. You can actually even listen to the commentary. Don't look at it real quick, but in, it just says, in naming, they did so according to the name given. In seeking purification, according to the law of Moses. In dedicating their son as written in the law of the Lord. In redeeming their son, according to what is said in the law of the Lord. In bringing their son to the temple. They acted according to the custom of the law. In verse 39 of chapter 2, they performed everything according to the law of the Lord. So you see this emphasis, which led to the sermon this morning. Worship rituals matter to God the Father who prescribed them. They matter to God the Son who practiced them and had to practice them to even be considered a righteous substitute for you. And they matter to the Holy Spirit and to Luke who penned them. I'm going to tell you they matter to everyone who is filled with awe, full of affection, aware of their own need, and wise. So now if you look at your sermon outline, five quick points of application that will help bring this home. As you now look at what the entire scripture has to say about ritual worship, here's the first point. No rituals are efficacious. What do I mean by that? Here's a word that will help you, but it's not any more clear. <laughs> it's that word that Jimmy read the other day that's kind of funny. Salvific, S-A-L-V-I-F-I-C. What do I mean by that? Rituals don't save. They have never saved. There has never been a magic surgery called circumcision. A magic person who had the cred to mediate between God and man. There's never been a magic animal who could take away your sin or a magic meal that filled you with the Holy Spirit. There's never been a magic gift that if you gave sufficiently, you could purchase God's prosperity and His blessings. There's not a magic sacrifice you can make that impresses God so that He will then give you the health, wealth, and prosperity you desire. There's not a magic piece of real estate where someone can go to find God nearer than right here. There's not a magic building anywhere where God is more found than other places. There is not a magic washing called baptism, a magic piece of furniture called a pulpit. There's not a magic manner of dress that makes a man more fit to be used by God. There's not a magic membership list that if you got your name at least on a church registry, and it stays there till you die, that you're guaranteed you get to go to heaven. There's only the efficacious power of God. God is the one who does anything for you. God is the one who blesses. God is the one who graces. Many people have participated in all the things that I just told you, from the Lord's Supper to baptism to sitting in church services, to giving their money, and have never, ever been blessed by God. 
They don't just work because you work them. It's God who blesses. That's the first point. Secondly, now some of these rituals that people do or have done are expired. It is true that back in the day, Adam and Eve were not to eat from a special tree. Or Cain and Abel had to give acceptable sacrifices. Or that Noah had to know the difference between the clean and the unclean animals and that everybody had to worship on Saturday. It's very, very clear. At Sinai came a whole bunch more rules. These were rituals from God. You had to do them. They included animal sacrifices, bread offerings, tithing, special days, weeks, and feasts, special rules for how to keep the Sabbath. You had holy tents, holy rooms, holy furniture, and holy furnishings, special clothing, special incense, many different baptisms or washings, times of isolation or timeout, and sacred surgeries. All of that and more was prescribed by God, and if you were an Israelite back in the day, they're not optional. You had to do them. He's serious about them because they helped teach his children about him, but they're temporary. They're for a time. Jesus said it is finished. The veil was ripped from the top to the bottom in the temple. The temple doesn't even exist anymore. And in the inspired text of the New Testament, it's very, very clear. Circumcision, which was one of the most important. Listen to what Paul says. And Paul was a Jew who liked Jewish tradition. Circumcision means nothing. Because certain rituals expired. Thirdly, some rituals are extra. If you want another word to put there, just put nice or helpful, fun, preferred. They're not bad. They're just extra. God never required them. We all have these kind of rituals in our life, traditions that we get from our fathers and mothers that we enjoy now and we pass on to our children and hope they'll pass it on to their children. I mean, we stand for the national anthem. That doesn't make you righteous or godly. It's just something you do because you've been taught to be a patriotic American. You stand for the hallelujah course. That's a tradition. We eat turkey on Thanksgiving. We throw bird seed at weddings. Boys' rooms are blue. Girls' rooms are pink. At special meals, we're taught by our parents to wait for the host to start eating or at least put that fork across their plate. Once again, these are just rituals that we have in life that we pass down from generation to generation and we have them in the church too. Now I start stepping on toes because some of the things that you hold dear are just nice, but you think they're sacred. Okay, here we go. They're not bad. We don't have to get rid of them. We can still use them, but you don't get to say you're bad if you don't do them. Such as... Advent candles, the way we collect money, having a dedicated building, the way we celebrate Christmas or Easter or other holidays, the way we keep our Lord's Day, what times we have service, 
what the order of worship in a service is going to be, the posture of worship, whether or not you do invitations or altar calls, whether you use technology or hymn books, whether you use the KJV or the ESV or the NIV or something else, whether you have furniture such as pulpits or use lecterns, whether you have a communion table or a folding Rubbermaid table, whether you have a baptismal font or pews or where furniture is placed, you would not believe some of the arguments I've had in churches about where furniture needs to be placed. We actually had a meeting at a previous church when we were building about whether or not you had to have a center aisle. Now, I know mothers with brides, they believe God is ordained. There has to be a center aisle. It's nice. It's extra. Membership procedures. What one has to do to become part of the family of God. All of these things are traditions. They're not necessarily wrong. They can be kept. They can be helpful. But they're just extra. But some of our traditions now, none of them are efficacious. Some have expired. Some are nice. Some are evil. Yes, there are some things that we do that we ought not do that maybe we've been doing for a long time because our fathers and our grandfathers and others have done. The Bible is that which tells us how to worship. It legislates when it wants to legislate. It leaves free when it wants to leave free. It regulates and it provides for Christian liberty. But we ought never do that which Scripture forbids. So no traditions that are forbidden by Scripture. And we must always allow, or we must never discourage that which the Bible encourages. And so, whether you have a tradition or a ceremony that has come from parents or denominations or just your community does that way now, or maybe it's your preference, or maybe you even have some charismatic leader who wins the day and sways you in this regard. We are people of the book. We worship by the book. And if it goes against the book, we're against it, no matter how sweet this tradition is to you. What would one of those, some of those things be? Worshiping something or someone else other than God. Using images or icons in worship. Shallow, mindless, indecent, disorderly worship. Discounting the Lord's day. Prayers for deceased loved ones. Prayers to dead saints. Withholding wine from the laity. Requiring baptism for communion. Some of you may want to challenge me on that. I do not understand where you would go in the Scripture to take a child of God who has been saved, redeemed, adopted, accepted, declared perfect, blameless, holy, and right. And because your session hasn't had a chance to meet in the last two months, when you offer all those people who know Christ to come to the table, you would put up your hands and say, no, stay away, because you haven't yet gone through the order that we prefer. I know I have brothers that might differ with me here, but I do not understand that. This is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ for people who are His. Requiring baptism for salvation. There are denominations that do that. 
There are churches who sell blessings in eternity called indulgences. There are churches who sell blessings in this life called send me your check in the mail. There are churches who sell offices, some explicitly just pay up, some because they like the prominent wealthy people being their elders and their deacons. There are churches that discourage the usage of spiritual gifts because they just don't like things being a bit uh, unkept. There are churches that show special preference based upon ethnicity or gender or class. And there are churches who publicly shame a repentant brother or sister. The fact that they are broken in their sin and running for help is not enough. Sometimes they have to cart the person up and make them give their testimony before the entire church. I would tell you those represent rituals that lots of churches do, some really big universal churches do, and they're evil. But I end now with the final point. Some rituals are endorsed. And what would those rituals be? You can see the pictures here. Gathering. That's what God would have us do. You are sinning against Almighty God if you're not interested in the gathering of believers, if you are forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, this is what we do, and it appears that we do it on the Lord's day, the first day of the week. The Word. It is not optional for you to get in the ritual of devouring the Word of God. That's why we make big deals of it in the assembly, and we're asking you to make a big deal of it every single day. Prayer. That's why we sing, if you ever wonder why we sing, because it's our prayers to God of adoration, of thanksgiving, of supplication, of confession, as we are singing praise to God or singing of our need. Lord, I need you every day. I need This is prayer. Sometimes we speak it, sometimes we sing it, but Jesus said my house is supposed to be a house of prayer. These are the rituals that I'm asking you this year in 2023 to get engaged in. Make this a priority that you gather on the Lord's Day, that you read the Bible or memorize the Bible or meditate on the Bible, that you pray and sing every single day. Fourthly, that you give. This is what we do. We don't have to give the tithe, I don't believe, like the Old Testament did. We are given no such prescriptions in the New Testament. Your Westminster Confession does not address this in any way. You just have to be a really good, cheerful giver. Why? Because you're excited. Because you like what Jesus Christ is doing, and you now say, I want to participate and be gracious with the stuff the Lord has given to me from His grace. Next, we've got baptism. We don't have one today, but I want to ask you, Believers, have you been baptized? If not, there's a ritual which Christ has ordained that he would like you to keep. This is the mark of being a child of Abraham. Christians today are called sons of Abraham. And as such, we receive the mark, which shows we have faith, we believe, so get the mark and quit living without being baptized. Or get saved. Come to Christ. Quit your wavering. But this church should be filled with worshipers who have called upon Christ to be their Savior and are baptized. And what? Understand that there has been no regulation whatsoever where God has said that sign of being a child of Abraham, I want you now to only give it to believers 
No, in the Old Testament, it was a physical cutting. That's changed. But that physical cutting was for believers and their children. You get to the New Testament, the sign of water baptism is supposed to be done to believers and their children. Baptisms and washings were always done to believers and their children. And so that's why we practice infant baptism, not because it's efficacious and it saves, but because it's just really good ritual worship showing I'm a father. All I can do is produce dirty children. Holy Spirit, we need you to come and wash my child. And now we engage in one more ritual, and it's called the Lord's Supper. Why do we do this? Because he has said, I want you to keep doing this until the day I come back again. And even here, you have an incredible picture of the gospel. You are hungry. You are needy. You need the sustenance of the Lord. You are thirsty. You are needy. You need the cup of blessing from the Lord. You are sinful. You deserve to die. You need the death of the Lord. You are betrothed to Him. There are better days coming. And one day there will be the glorious marriage feast in heaven. And so this is what we do. And maybe we ought to do this even more often than once a month. Because it's a ritual. It's prescribed by Jesus Christ. And so I'm asking you in 2023 to be a people consumed by these things, dedicated to them, not because they make you righteous, but because this is where Christ meets us. It's where he gives us more grace, grace upon grace. Then one final application. And dads, When the heavenly father decided he needed a surrogate father, an adoptive father, to train his son in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. When the heavenly father he decided he wanted to provide someone who would help Jesus grow in, in his relationship with man and his relationship with God. He chose this guy named Joseph. Joseph was the good example that led Mary. Joseph was the good example that led Mary and Jesus. Joseph was the worship leader who brought his family into this practice of ritual worship. This is the kind of husband our wives need. This is the kind of father our children need. Elders, this is the kind of leadership our church needs. Manly men, real men. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, which means we can't wait to get engaged in his rituals because he's awesome. Man, do we love him because he loves us. We are so needy and we're wise. If the one who can save our soul says this is really good worship, let's rededicate ourselves to that in the year 2023.